Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 262 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have as our featured guests magicians and escape artists, Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks, two of the most respected, highly regarded in the United States of America. It's a true pleasure to have them on the show talking with us about their stories, their history, and uh, their experiences in the world of magic and as individuals, as artists, as historians too. They have a museum dedicated to Houdini, the only that exists in the United States of America. Uh, we talk a bit about their favorite tricks, and uh, it's a great narrative, a great interaction with Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks today on the program. We also have an EW essay by yours truly titled Hocus Pocus, and another wonderfully written and beautifully read original essay written just for this episode by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavise, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. And this particular piece is titled, The Molly Maguires. We also have a poem called Buttress. And of course, as is always the case, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 262 of Troubadours and Tours. Oh! 
Hocus Pocus. Can you catch a bullet in your mouth or saw a person in half and live well to tell the world about it? Are there rabbits in your hat or a skunk in that old-fashioned trunk you lug from gig to gig? Is the loan you got from Manny the neighborhood tough guy tranny working out the back of the laundromat killing you with its exorbitant vig just so you can create wonder for the folks who need it so bad almost as much as you do too and the days pass into weeks into months into years and all those deep-rooted fears have either emptied you out or you have found ways to transcend them and grow stronger, full of wisdom and hope, courage and kindness beyond the desperate tribulations of a more myopic scope, rope-a-dope sort of approach to living your life. The soulful sentiment and sweet aromas of existence inscrutably mixed with our intrinsic strife. A beautiful sort of magic. Hocus pocus. And you walk on with a devious smile and plenty of tricks up your sleeve until the day you leave performing the most profound disappearing act there can be.
Hey, how are you? Dorothy at CW Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, great to hear from you. It's a pleasure. Before we get started, I would like to give the listeners a little background information, if you don't mind. Sure. First, let's start with Dorothy. Dorothy Dietrich, a.k.a. the female Houdini. First lady of magic, (laughs) pioneer woman, magician, escape artist. Columbia University Encyclopedia picked the eight most noted magicians of the late 20th century and included Siegfried and Roy, Doug Henning, Harry Blackstone Jr., David Copperfield, and Dorothy Dietrich. Dorothy is often called, quote, the world's leading female magician and the first lady of magic. Many of the things she has done are unprecedented in the history of magic. Dorothy is the first woman to saw a man in half and the first woman to catch a bullet in her mouth. This feat ranking as one of the most compelling of her accomplishments as a magician. She has paved the way for females in the world of magic and the escape field. Dick Brooks, a.k.a. Bravo the Great, has performed magic for and with Muhammad Ali, David Copperfield, Brooke Shields, to name but a few. He has been given the title Magician to the Stars. Dick has received the highest honor and award that can be bestowed on any magician by the Society of American Magicians. As a teenager, he joined a Department of Parks Magic Club, headed up by the official magician of New York City, Abe Hurwitz, a.k.a. Peter Pan the Magic Man, who was also the father of the soon-to-be-famous Sherry Lewis with her puppet Lamb Chop. Brooks came up with the name for an important group, Fame, which stood for Future American Magical Entertainers. It laid the foundation for the Society of American Magicians. Dick, along with Dorothy, are the founders of the Magic Town House on the Upper East Side of Manhattan that presented magic in New York City for over 15 years. Dick was the founder and editor of the highly regarded magician's periodical Hocus Pocus Magic Magazine. Dorothy was also an editor of Hocus Pocus. Wanting a larger facility and place to house their collection of Houdini memorabilia, Dick and Dorothy moved from New York City into the Pocono Mountains and opened the Houdini Museum in the city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Dorothy and Dick have headlined in Las Vegas and Atlantic City. They have been featured on Homebox Office Specials, the Biography Channel, ABC, CBS, NBC, Ripley's Believe It or Not, You Ask For It, The Montel Williams Show, The David Susskind Show, The Robert Klein Show, to name but a few. They have worked tirelessly to preserve the legacy of Harry Houdini with efforts including the restoration of his bust at Houdini's gravesite. They also restored and shared with the world Houdini's first feature film, The Grim Game. Folks, highly respected and thoroughly renowned magicians, Dorothy Dietrich and <laughs> Dick Brooks. You guys are amazing. I'd like to meet these people. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? It's going great. There's one correction on the on the intro, and that is that the uh, the Houdini film, the restoration of the film, we actually facilitated getting it done. But the the company that did it was um, uh, Turner Classic Movies. Oh, they did. Oh, you facilitated it, but they act, yeah. they actually. Well, that's even that's even cooler in a way. You kind of yeah. Turner. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, they have a, the budget to do that kind of thing and do it right, so they did. And when they saw the the outtakes of the restoration, because it's a silent film, 
they said, wow, this is great. And they hired a composer to do um, a musical score. Wow. Wow. And you guys, didn't you guys? Everyone in the the, uh, movie industry for 96 years thought the movie was lost forever. And we knew a collector who had the only known copy hidden in his collection and didn't want to part with it. We actually bought it from him twice. And when we went to get it, he turned us down. He changed his mind. So we ended up being able to get Turner Classic Movies to take it over and restore it. And it turns out to be Houdini's best film and really establishes him as a fine uh, movie actor, which people had no idea of. That's an amazing accomplishment. It truly. And the guy you bought it from, he was uh, out of Brooklyn, New York, wasn't he? Yes, Larry Weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get started from the beginning to see how you got into all of this. Uh, how how um, did each of you become enamored with magic? Uh, <clears throat> magic has been uh, something that I, ever since I was a little kid, I saw a magician at my grade school, elementary school. And the I was fortunate because at that particular school, we had an auditorium with rake seating and a stage with a red curtain on the stage, and it had theatrical lighting. They had red lights uh, shining upon the, the red curtain, and when I walked into that room the very first time, it was dreamy. I thought, wow, this is very, very special. And uh, the pr- principal came on stage and introduced the act and said, we're going to have a magic show today, and I had never seen one. And um, so he goes on stage and the magic begins. And I was so mesmerized. I was so impressed by the magic. But it didn't take long for me to start looking around the room and realize, holy cow, he has everybody in a different zone. Whatever this guy is doing, is he has polarized everyone in the room and brought us to a place where anything that, that would be impossible is now possible. And I thought, at the time, I thought, wow, I wonder if he gets paid to do this. Because <laughs> that's what I want to do. I want to do that. And I didn't realize until later what that feeling was, is the feeling of wonder. And basically, the only way you get that feeling is if there's something that puzzles you that you have no idea what's going on. You know, and you get that total sense of wonder. So it's a pleasure every time I perform, because you can see it in people's faces when they are mystified. Thanks, Dorothy. How about you, Dick? Well, uh, I was raised in New York City, as you can probably tell from the way I talk. And uh, in my uh, one of my schoolmates was uh, Walden Casado, who eventually would become uh, Bobby Darren, uh, who did Mac the Knife and a lot of other had a big TV specials, etc. And, and we were buddies, and we would go to a local. They had a small time, not small time, but they had two, th- three theaters in our area that had vaudeville so we would go in in the afternoon and we would watch the show and then we'd hide in the balcony uh, at night because they didn't allow youngsters at night and then we'd go down uh, to the main floor and find a couple and sit next to them so we look like their kids <laughs> so that we could watch so we could watch the second show and uh, so all of my life I've been uh, interested in entertaining and uh, as a youngster I auditioned for the Paul Whiteman show who uh, had George Gershwin write Rhapsody in Blue and I was announcing there for Tootsie Roll and 
then they had a, a they said well why are we bringing this kid to philadelphia it could be was uh, uh, on a philadelphia station and they said we could get in trouble he's a minor and i was making more at that time than my father was making hmm. and uh, so they had a, a young intern take my place after i did that for a while i don't know if you know his name dick clark oh yeah and that eventually that eventually would morph into a teen a bandstand from a teen club it was paul whiteman's teen club and it morphed into a teen bandstand so and then american, been, american bandstand yeah and so i've been been doing this all my life that's pretty cool that's pretty cool uh and you guys, uh, you guys weren't. You were born in, in New York, as you mentioned, uh, Dick and Dorothy. You were in, born, I think, in Erie, right? Yeah, I was in Erie, PA. So, how'd you guys get together? How'd you how'd you come to work together? Well, I ran away from home when I was a teenager, and um, to get away from my father, who was an abusive alcoholic, and I. Figured I didn't really have a choice. That, that the only way I'm going to survive is if I uh, earn enough money to get out of that that house. And so, ever since I was tall enough to pull a, a stool up to the sink, I was washing dishes for people, uh, doing uh, raking leaves, painting. Do if I'd see somebody painting something, I'd say, "Oh, you have no idea what a good painter I am. I would do that for you." Just don't, don't. I won't tell you how much. You just give me what you think it's worth, and I'd tell people that you know, give me some money, and they'd give me more than I would have asked. <laughs> and so I saved three thousand dollars, and I figured I had plenty of money to survive in New York City. <laughs> so I hit the road. And my girlfriend's older brother was bringing a, a driving a car into the city. It's a little red sports car, and he was so br- uh, happy he was going to be doing this. You know, driving this fancy sports car so he was bragging all over the place so I, I asked my girlfriend to ask him if he would bring me with him to the city because I want to go live in the city and uh, he said yes <laughs> <laughs> he'd be arrested now right um, yeah but he dropped me to the city and now he never even asked the question about it you know he was just you know everything is fine everything's great then we get to the city and he says oh uh, what are you going to do now? I said, i got to find a place to live. He said, how are you going to do that? I said, i got to look in the newspaper. And so I go to the newspaper. And how, how old, how old were you now? How old were you now? I was 13. 13. Yeah. Yeah. But I uh, I read a book about Houdini written by Walter Gibson, who is the, the, also the author of The Shadow. And Walter Gibson wrote in that book that Houdini left home at 12 years old. Uh and I thought, well, if he if he could do it, well, anybody could do it, right? Right. Why not? Why not? I mean, nobody's told me what I could or couldn't do. Mostly, what you can't do. You know, when I was a kid, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. And I just thought, well, Houdini did it, and what's the worst thing that could happen? I could just crawl back on my hands and knees and say, I'm coming home. <laughs> and uh, so, on the newsstand, there was a magazine called Showbiz Newspaper. And I was, it was like everything opened up, you know, and I had already put together a cute little magic act that I had um, thought was the best thing on earth, you know. And uh, so I went to uh, the back of the paper and there were three gals that were all in showbiz that were looking for another female to help uh, rent the their space. 
and the rent was 150 a month. <laughs> nice. So that was, that was good. That was like amazing to me. And I thought, wow. Now the big thing is I have to keep it a secret that I actually have three thousand dollars in my pocket, and I had to carry it with me everywhere because I didn't trust anybody. I didn't know anything about banking or anything, and uh, so that was my big thing. I, um, but I didn't want to blow it. I wanted to be able to survive forever. So I went to the supermarket and found that they had um, packaged waffles, frozen waffles you could get. Uh, three packs for a dollar, and there were eight waffles in a pack. And I thought, I love waffles. <laughs> yeah, me so too. I, I survived on frozen waffles for the first year. And even though I was making money doing jobs, I still said, you're not going to blow the money. You have to, when you make money, you have to spend it on things that are important, but you can't be blowing your money. And I so I auditioned um I learned about the audition system, you know, and I went to an audition for the Westchester Department of, of Parks. They were looking for entertainers to, to perform in the Parks Department. And so I said, wow, this, this is great. It was 30 shows. Nobody in show business gets that kind of deal. Right. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even realize how great it was. 30 shows we paid for each show. Holy cow. And uh, so I did the audition. I get there, and they have an, an, a room with a table, long table, with three people, and each of them having clipboards and pens. And I'm like, oh, geez, this is terrible. <laughs> like They're going to sit there and not, not emote at all. And I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to, it's not going to work. I'm not going to be able to be, you know, Miss Jolly, you know. So I said, I figured, you know what, it could fail if I just do it the way they've got it set up, or it could fail if I ask them, so let me fail my way, uh, or it could succeed. So I asked them, you know, I told them, I, I'm a performer, and, and what really would be helpful is if you could, like, just be an audience, and, you know, like, you want me to perform at the parks, you could be the people at the park looking to see this entertainer and be entertained. So if you could just be entertained, um, I don't have a lot of talking that you won't have to write a whole lot down. Um, so I'm wondering if that would be like, you could applaud like an audience and laugh and giggle and, you know, when it's appropriate. And, and I, I think we'll have a great time. And they looked at each other and they shoved their clipboards aside and they watched the show. Great. It was, I mean, it was great. And I, you have no idea how much strength it took me to get to, to, to do that, to even say, I'm going to do this, you know. I'm going to talk to these people like like I'm a grown-up, you know. And again, you're, you're like 13, 14 years old. Yeah. And But I had to be grown-up, you know. Like now I tell people, I tell kids, you know, um, you have to act like a grown-up, but don't grow up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a good way of putting yeah. it. But, so they saw the show. They asked me to sit in the hallway for a few minutes. Uh, it wasn't even five minutes later. They called me back in and said, what's your schedule look like for the summer? <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, it's definitely available. <laughs> and definitely. I want, I want to do this so bad. And they loved it so much. At the end of the summer, they recommended me to the Department of Education. So I put together a program for schools called Believe in Yourself. 
which she still does to this day. Of course, much highly upgraded, but uh, she still does a lot of school shows. We both do, uh, even to this day. Yeah, I recently, actually, we live in the same town, and I just saw you at my kids' elementary school doing a show. Right. And they they loved it. They they, they loved yeah. it so much. Now, so how let's let's get Dick into the picture. How did how did you meet Dick? is Dick uh, coming into this sort of circle of of people with within the education system? We we base we basically in New York you do what's called the go sees you go to see agents. They were usually around 50th and Broadway, the the Brill Building, etc., the Palace Building. In those days, there were agents the, uh, in all of those buildings, and you make the rounds. So we ran into each other. Uh, in the agents' offices, because we were both looking for kind of the same uh, kind of work, and then we decided uh, rather than be responsible to agents' work, why don't we open our own theater in New York? So we looked around for a place, and we ended up opening, uh, which you mentioned, the Magic Townhouse on 61st and Third, which was a top area in New York City, and we ran that as a nightclub and cabaret where we could perform and also we ended up mentoring a lot of people that are now uh, famous magicians around the country and magic and uh, they're still performing today and they're still friends of ours to this day and then uh, when the rents got too high Donald Trump built Trump Towers right next to us Trump Plaza Trump Plaza and all of the rents went sky high we looked for a place uh, with uh, Houdini history and we also looked for a place uh, we, we we didn't. The crime was really bad in New York. We wanted a relative low crime area with uh, uh, high high moral values, and Scranton kind of fit that picture, along with being next to the Pocono Mountains, where at that time there were a lot of uh, shows and club dates in the Pocono Mountains as well. And uh, when we uh, moved here, we ended up even uh, driving back and forth into New York to do some of our shows like at the Reg- St. Regis Hotel, the Waldorf, et cetera. And here and there, we still go into New York, either one of us. We never work as a team We in shows. We always uh, work separate because if you work as a team, nobody wants you to pay pay you double. So hmm. we'll often, she'll go one way, I'll go another. Uh, and we'll do school shows, uh, parties, uh, you name it. We do any kind of event. Uh, we do a lot of society parties. They have events all the time. Uh, they have birthday parties for their kids, very, um, very, some very elaborate and some uh, just in the apartment, uh, which most um, high society, it's amazing to me in New York City, um, how many wealthy, like very wealthy people are there. Um, and uh, they live a very luxurious life. Well, um, you, so, you guys mentioned how uh, you did some shows, I think Dick in particular, with, before maybe Brooke Shields or uh, Muhammad Ali and things of that nature. Were, were those private parties? Mo- yeah, mostly, yeah most mostly. of those events are all private. The Brooke Shields was actually at the Copacabana in New York. They had a big event there uh, at the Copa. So uh, Muhammad Ali actually came to our place, and, and he learned... He learned magic from me and Dorothy that he ended up doing on television. So it's it's just all different directions. It's amazing. He came to your place uh, when it was uh, in New York City? Magic yeah, the Magic Townhouse. It was uh, three stories of a townhouse. Uh, the first floor was a theater. for uh, We did family shows on Saturdays and Sundays, matinees for families. And at one end of the that 
floor was the magic store and the magic store was open all week as well as the weekend. And then um, on the middle floor was the nightclub and cabaret where on one end was a kitchen where we would have a, uh, a staff setting up a buffet style uh, dinner. And on the other end and the middle was tables and chairs. And then on the other end was the performance space where the performers would perform. And then the top floor was um, another another floor where we had most of the Houdini collection up there, kind of to keep it away from the public um, in general. But uh, it was also overflow when the cabaret was, uh, was real busy. And at one time, we had as many as 22 people working for us, uh, mostly part-time, but we had a big staff, and it was one of the most successful places here. Uh, in Manhattan, uh, when we were running it, it was really a great, great time. Now, uh, what what are some of your favorite uh, magic tricks and illusions? Whether you do them or you just admire other people doing them. You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Hmm, that's that's a tough one because I like it all. I think my favorite thing is to. Uh, when I was a, a little kid starting out at the parks, I found that the families were wonderful, but some time, they were they were also renegade teenagers that were out on the park on their own. And when they'd see a, an entertainer, they were there to harass the, the entertainer, you know. And so I was performing magic and talking to the audience, and these kids would yell things out. And then I thought, oh, this this is how do I handle this? Because this is I don't want to be the bad guy telling them, hey, you cut that out, you know. I want to I want to entrance them. I want them to be as entertained as the little kids. So I thought if I put together the show, the music at the beginning, just the music is playing as magic is happening. So the music is nice and loud, not overbearing, but loud enough that there's just magic happening to music. So the music goes on, there's a dove, then there's... Um, a bunny rabbit and another dove and another dove and uh, and then magic. There's scarves appearing and all kinds of things happening. And and then at the end of the musical part, then I talk. And I will tell you that that was the best thing that I ever did, and I still do it to this day. Could could you tell us about uh, one of the things you're famous for, is catching the bullet in your mouth, that illusion? Uh, well, I was... I had researched that because Houdini, that was the one stunt that Houdini would not do. And for very good reason. Nobody should do it. It's very deadly. There's a book that was written called 12 Have Died. And it's about the people who had died uh, attempting to do it. And now it's more than uh, 12. It's probably about 20. In fact, just recently, a lady killed her boyfriend. I don't know if you saw it on the internet. No. She killed her. She's in jail now. She killed... He was going to catch it in a, in a, in a book in a big fat encyclopedia. A young couple. They thought they'd go viral on, on, on YouTube. YouTube. So wow. it's very, very dangerous even um, and not recommended at all to, to toy with that. And, and even Houdini backed away from it. But not you, Dorothy. So, so what I decided was that if there's ever going to be an opportunity to get... Um, to do something that is massive, like, you know, earth shattering, that would be the one if I could figure a sort of safe way or the most safe way to do it. Uh, that's uh, what I would like to do. Well, I, uh, 
along my my life, I I um, most of the early years, I was always told, "Oh, girls can't do magic. You should become a nurse. You should <laughs> you should you should become a secretary." And you can kind of oh, you know, magic isn't even agents would say, "I can't see it." A, a girl on stage, why? Well, I'm doing magic. Yeah, why would you do magic on stage? No, well, that's how do I book that? I said, you just book it as a magician. And when I show up, I happen to be female. Why do you have to even say it's a female magician? It's a magician. Just you, Wow. So I finally, after being on, I was booked on the HBO special, World's Greatest Escapes. And uh, after, that was with uh, the star of that show was uh, Tony the, the, the MC of that show was Tony Curtis because he played Houdini in the movie. so And she was a special guest star on that show. It's called The World's Greatest Escapes. You can see clips of it on YouTube even today. Oh, great. It's, it's hard to watch. you got, you got to watch it. It looks like, holy cow, who would do this? And um, She's hanging from a burning rope on a parachute ride upside down in a straitjacket with handcuffs, and she's got to get out before the... And they set the rope on fire that she's hanging from so she's got to get out before the rope burns through. It's pretty exciting if you if you check out a YouTube Dorothy Dietrich, you'll find it. I'll check so it out. I was in, I've got a call from uh, the the International Brotherhood of Magicians, and they asked if I would be uh, be able to perform for their international conference. And that's a big honor when you get invited to one of these national you know international conferences. Uh, just the the idea of performing for them at one of these events is, uh, you know, it says a lot. It says that they accept you and that you're, um, you know, important to the world of magic. So I thought, oh, you know, I would love to do this. And I thought if I go and do my pretty girl magic, it would be fun and lovely, but it wouldn't be really memorable. So I thought I have to do things that are memorable. So I did the straight jacket hanging upside down over the three rivers um, in Pittsburgh. That's where the, it was scheduled to be at. And I also did the bullet catch at Point State Park. And um, to this day, I have people come up to me and ask for my autograph. And they say, I was there at Pitt in Pittsburgh when you caught that, bo that bullet. How could you do that? It's like, wow. Did you do it one and one time? I did it for them. I also uh, did it for just for the record. It was um, it's an Australian TV show that um, go travels around the world doing incredible like covering incredible people that do incredible feats of daring uh, a daring um, stunt. <laughs> and um, they wanted to do it in New York, and I said they wanted me to find a venue. Well, I had been contacted by the uh, the Trump Casino in Atlantic City to perform at the, uh, their 10th anniversary at the casino. And I thought, well, that might be a great place to do it if they don't mind a bullet being shot in their casino, you know. Do we have to tell them? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, we have to tell them. And we could have gotten in big trouble because we... We drove from New York to um, Atlantic City with a rifle. Oh, it's a and rifle. Apparently that's, yeah. Who it's, shot? Yeah, who who shot the bullet? Marksman. A marksman. Yeah. Dick, yeah, had, were you a little nervous? 
yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it was a great event and a great time. She's only done it a few times, but uh, to establish it, it's not something you can do every day. In fact, David Blaine wanted to do it every th- in his show. He's kind of a, a friend of ours, and we've suggested to him and not to do it. And up until now, he has not done it on his traveling show. He's He also has just done it a few times uh, because there are too many... From many directions, there are a lot of reasons. When there are loaded weapons around, anything can happen. So it's not recommended. Now, folks, again, Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks, two of our most accomplished, respected magicians uh, in the United States and the world. It's an honor having you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Uh, and we only have a minute or so, believe it or not. The time goes by quickly when we, when we converse. So I want to give you an opportunity uh, well, first of all, if people want to get in touch with you and see some of your work, the the uh, Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, they can do a Google search for that. You could look up uh, Dorothy Absolutely. Dietrich and Dick Brooks with a Z, uh, uh, B-R-O-O-K-Z, and they can find out more information right. about uh, both of these folks. Dietrich is D-I-E-T-R-I-C-H, I believe. Um, yep. Do you have any <clears throat> closing thoughts? Of, uh, well, yes. Uh, we're, we do a lot of birthday parties. Uh, at our place, we also travel to do birthday parties, and we have a game coming out, Houdiniopoly. You can see about that on Houdiniopoly.com. Excellent. Yeah, we do, a lot of, we do a lot of things at the museum. We're open every weekend from now and uh, all year round, Saturdays and Sundays at 1 o'clock. And uh, you should always reserve ahead because it sells out. We're not a big place, so call ahead. And then in July and August, we're open every single day. At one o'clock, just come. You don't need to. You sh- you should call if you're coming from a distance because it could sell out. We get a lot of camp groups in the summer. Uh, this time of year, we get the school field trips, which is really rewarding. We get to spend several hours with the kids, inspiring uh, inspiring them about magic and Houdini and his incredible life. That uh, he is such a good role model for kids, adults. Everybody should uh, learn a little bit about Houdini because he's the kind of person that everybody should be. Um, and uh, we're so proud to be a part of a project like this. There are so many things that to tell you about uh, that are coming up in the future. Uh, but basically, it's a blast. The magic show that we do at the Houdini Museum includes the beautiful doves, a duck, a rabbit, a poodle. We even levitate an audience member in the air, pass the hoop, and float them back down. So it's a lot of fun. Again, it's fascinating to to uh, to hear what you've accomplished and and uh, your love and passion for magicians, magic, and Houdini in particular. Thank you so much, Dick Brooks and Dorothy. You know what I want to you know what I want to tell you quickly is magic is not considered an art form, and and it's a shame. I mean, it is an art form, and it's kind of more considered a circus art. And even I think the government is declared it an art form now. Now the government is finally, finally declared that magic is an art form. And why I think it is is because mag- you don't see all the skill when you see a magician perform. You don't see how hard and how much effort they've put into it in the lifetime of study. Because you hide the skill when you do magic. So it, it just looks like you're just doing stuff and it happens, you know. So that's the one thing. that I, I, it, Magic is a respectable art form that anyone should consider. And you can travel the world if you become a magician. 
Oh, that's a great way to end our conversation. Thank you so much, Dorothy and Dick. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. We'll see you out and about. Yeah, absolutely. growing up, movies were much more real to me than reality. In considering occupations, for example, I would rather have been an astronaut in a movie than one in space. Not that I had a chance of becoming either. The thought of being blasted off into orbit terrified me, but the image of me in a bulky white space costume on a set with lights, cameras, and a dictatorial director yelling action, that was much more appealing. The same with the careers of cop, cowboy, spy. I would rather have played one of these than be one. Of course, it was not as if the nuns at my grade school, after a round of aptitude tests, were grooming me to be an international spy. And while I grew up in a depressed former coal town, and our mining heritage was inescapable, coal miners never greatly interested me. I had miners in my family, an uncle and grandfather. My mother told stories of seeing the coal-dust-covered faces of miners returning home after a day underground. I regularly visited the small faux mine at a local park 
now long since boarded up. But the miners that most compelled me were the miners in a movie filmed in another depressed former coal town, about forty miles from mine, near my father's hometown. The movie was called The Molly Maguires. The real Molly Maguires were a group of miners from northeastern Pennsylvania who, in the late nineteenth century, formed a secret organization that advocated change in working conditions by, for example, sabotaging mines. To the mine owners, they were criminals and terrorists. To the miners, and to many in the generations that came after them, they were heroes, fighting for justice and fair labor practices. The mine companies had all the money and the power the miners had themselves. The Molly Maguires would break the law and risk their lives to improve the lot of the miner. And the life of the miner was dismal, backbreaking, dangerous, and often short. If he wasn't killed in a mine accident, impoverishing forever his already poor widow and children, then he might spend his brief retirement crippled or hacking and wheezing from black lung. The movie, The Molly Maguires, was based on a novel by Arthur H. Lewis and inspired by the true story of the society. In the movie, a Pinkerton spy, played by Richard Harris, infiltrates the Mollies and befriends one of its leaders, Black Jack Kehoe, played by Sean Connery, in a gruff turn away from his trademark role of James Bond, which he had recently quit playing. The spy also falls in love with an Irish lass, played by Samantha Egger. It's a story of labor and exploitation. It's a gritty depiction of life in a coal town. It's a meditation on individualism, the Pinkerton spy, out for himself, and community, Black Jack and the other miners who sacrifice their lives for the sake of the cause. And it's a love story. It's beautifully filmed by the legendary James Wong Howe, and is a lilting score by Henry Mancini in the bleak ending of many a late 60s, early 70s movie. The filmmakers, director Martin Ritt and screenwriter Walter Bernstein, were firmly in the camp of labor and community. Old, proud, lefty artists with a social conscience, they were both blacklisted in the 50s, and later made the front, the 1976 movie about blacklisted screenwriters with Woody Allen as the title character, who agrees to put his name on the writer's work so he can make a buck and they can make a living. Martin Ritt later made Norma Ray, a classic labor movie with Sally Fields as a heroic union organizer. For Ritt and for Bernstein, art and advocacy joined together like members of a union. Although it was filmed miles away from our town, we could still feel the excitement created by Hollywood coming to a small town, a subject which has itself served as the story of more than a few movies. We were kept apprised of the filming by the local showbiz columnist, Sid Benjamin, who, much to my mother's delight, used old-school showbiz sayings like, he gave me the old brusheroo, and who interviewed aging stars and rising celebrities when they stopped in town for one-night shows or while on tour in plays or musicals. One regular feature of his column was Names the Same, in which he'd cite a man named, say, 
Jerry Lewis, enlist his local burrow, say, Oliphant. Sid filled, filled us in about the actors and the filmmakers, how they turned the old mining town into a movie set which looked like a mining town, and the time the filmmakers had to pay a man to stop mowing his lawn during a filming, and the thrill of the extras earning $15 a day for being authentically Irish-looking in bar, church, and football scenes. The movie's premiere was held at the Center Theater in our town. The stars weren't in attendance, but screenwriter Bernstein was, as was Malachi McCourt, who played a bartender. And following a career as a character actor, and a character, achieved minor fame after his brother Frank published his memoir, Angela's Ashes, about less violent, but no less downtrodden Irishmen. The filmmakers turned the little town of Eckley into a 19th century mining town and built a full-size coal breaker. That breaker and much of the movie's set became Eckley Miner's Village, a museum and a memorial to the past, the actual past, and the movie past. Let her go, boys. Come from far away to dance all night till the break of day. When they called her a hollering, do she do? You knew Uncle Finn was ready to go. Hey, you got about some down how to hill in the bus town. Wait a bit, Lord, how to bring you hear talking, you hear sing. Soldier Joy and one of Boston boys, the greatest of all, what Jenny Lynn, and me that's where Billin' begins. Hey, me that about some man how on a hill in the public town, maybe little Lord how to bring you here, talk you hear it sing. Forget that mournful day when Uncle Ben was called away. They hung up his fiddle, they hung up his bow. They knew it was time for him to go. Hey, he needed about some down how the hill and above the town. Oh, he made a little lot of how to ring. You could hear talking, you could hear sing.
pretty woman I wanna talk to me Lovely, lovely, lovely woman I sit upon my knee And there you have it, episode 262 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, magicians, escape artists, historians, and curators, Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. I'd like to thank these musical artists as well. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Ramones, ELO, Dinah Washington, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, Bill Withers, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, enjoy this one.